Welcome to Cato Audio for February 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Jerry Brito makes a case against expensive copyright. David Brenori evaluates state-level tax reforms. Michael Cannon explores Obamacare's vulnerabilities. Author David Sander discusses affirmative action. And Roger Pilon critiques theories of constitutional governance. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. In the election of 2012, four states had issues on the ballot dealing with same-sex marriage. In three states, gay marriage was affirmed. In one state, a ban was turned back. Those states, Maryland, Maine, Washington, and Minnesota. This issue is going to be front and center, at the very least at the state level, in years to come and probably in federal courts in the terms to come for the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm talking about this issue with David Lampo, author of the book, A Fundamental Freedom, Why Republicans, Conservatives, and Libertarians Should Support Gay Rights, and Walter Olson, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. So uh, just to get started here, there are cultural issues, there are legal issues, political issues that we need to sort of unpack here. So just to start then, Walter, what are the legal arguments that are being made in cases that are going to be brought forward at the Supreme Court? What cases have been brought forward already? There are two cases before the U.S. Supreme Court currently that will be heard in the upcoming term. And one of them comes from California, where the state's voters approved Proposition 8, banning same-sex marriage, which had been briefly legal there. The lawsuit in question seeks to overturn it. The lower court opinion did overturn it, and that is now on appeal. The other case is in the Federal Defense of Marriage Act enacted during the Clinton administration, which does several things, including impose a uniform federal definition of marriage so that even if a couple is married locally at their state level, the federal government will not recognize that marriage. The Second Circuit Federal Court of Appeals struck that down, and that case is on appeal. Several other federal courts have also considered it and generally ruled it unconstitutional. Now, David Lampo, when we talk about the issue of gay marriage, there is a sort of standard libertarian line that goes along with that, which is that this is a private institution. It is an institution that is the, the government should have no hand in. But of course, the government does have a hand in it. The government has thousands of hands in the institution of marriage. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, the problem with opposition to same-sex marriage or marriage equality, as it's often called, is that the opposition is based on the idea that heterosexual couples should have what I think can be called special legal rights because they represent the great majority of Americans. That's a term that was usually used against advocates of gay rights when they seek legal equality, but it really pertains to the question of of marriage as it's constituted here in the United States. And so the advocates of marriage equality really are asking for nothing more than that the state be neutral in the legal blessings it gives to, to couples, that it should not favor a one a kind of couple or one kind of legal arrangement over another. And I think that's really the crux of the issue today. Libertarians and conservatives allegedly believe in limited government and personal rights and that the, uh, the government should uh, take generally a hands-off laissez-faire approach. And yet the way that, that marriage has been handled and, and gay rights in general has been handled has, uh, has been to uh, have the government approve certain kinds of lifestyles and choices and to legally oppose others. And I think that's wrong. Marriage has 
a great many legal consequences, some of them with respect to the government's own actions. In the Windsor case now before the Supreme Court, the question is, when someone dies, does their widow get a pension? And the inequality is very stark because Mrs. Windsor was in a same-sex marriage recognized by New York and will be sent away without a penny. The People saw in the case of astronaut Sally Ride, she had a survivor. The survivor was not entitled to the sorts of benefits that an astronaut's survivor would have been otherwise. There are also implications for relations between citizens. And one of the most obvious, best-known ones is that married people are responsible for each other's debts. So in a state without gay marriage, if someone owes you money from some transaction or accident, you can't proceed against the marital assets because they're not married. And marriage actually, on the whole, tends to help other members of society because people who are married are more likely to pay all of their debts. They are less likely to become public charges. They are, in general, better legal risks to deal with. And one of the reasons is that they are responsible for each other's obligations. Okay. In terms of the argument advancing in behalf on behalf of marriage equality at the Supreme Court, in talking with Bob Levy and Ted Olson, no relation on this issue, they said they made basically an equal protections argument with respect specifically to California. Is that the argument that will carry the day if presented to the Supreme Court? Looking at where the justices have been in earlier cases, I think there are people who are predicting that equal protection will carry the day, but I think it's more common to predict that the courts will be looking for some sort of middle ground. I think the consensus among legal analysts is that it's not going to be a total win for either side. It's not going to be, in particular, what some hope and others fear, a, a pronouncement that equal protection means that gay marriage has to become the law of the land coast to coast in all 50 states. At the same time, especially given that some rather conservative courts below found constitutional problems with the Defense of Marriage Act, or at least with one part of it, not many people are predicting a complete win for the anti-gay marriage forces either. So the question is where they come down among all the middle positions. Okay. The politics of this, I think, are really fascinating, particularly for Republicans, because you have a group of Republicans who sort of came up with Ronald Reagan in the late 70s and early 1980s. Uh, Reagan, for all of his talk, didn't really give the social conservatives a whole lot. But these people are a solid wing of the Republican Party and have been for some time. We had a relatively successful candidacy of Mike Huckabee, a relatively successful candidacy of Rick Santorum. And these are the people who make this kind of issue front and center. These are Republicans who put social conservatism out front and everything else they're not as worried about. With these kinds of legal cases going forward, with states flipping over, what are the options available to Republicans who want to have electoral success years and decades to come? Well, I think they're going to have to reject people like Huckabee and uh, Santorum. Polling has shown for many years now that what you can call a silent majority of Republicans actually support gay rights. Now, that certainly doesn't extend yet to same-sex marriage, but a, a growing percentage of Republicans support even that, anywhere from a quarter to a third of Republican voters. But certainly a substantial majority of Republicans now support some kind of relationship recognition. A Fox News poll from last year, for example, showed 59 percent of Republicans supporting either civil unions or same-sex marriage. Now, you certainly wouldn't know that when you hear social conservatives or even the Republican leadership talk about gay rights and the Republican Party, and yet that's where rank-and-file Republicans stand. So I think supporters 
of legal equality for uh, gays and lesbians have to uh, take a greater voice within the Republican Party and reject people like uh, Santorum and Huckabee. And it's even harder for opponents of gay marriage to keep their grip on the Republican Party, which they've had the past few years in, in platform and elsewhere, because as David said, a significant sector of Republicans are now actively in favor. And I analyzed the votes this November from the four states that had it on the ballot, and particularly in Maryland and Minnesota, two states that have a lot of classic Republican bedroom suburbs, places with relatively high incomes, a lot of commuters. And many of those towns voted strongly for Romney and also for gay marriage in their states. So that's one sector of the Republican Party that's going to be hard to ignore. But there's another one too, which is people who are not necessarily in favor of gay marriage, but just think that it's a big distraction and want the party to focus on other issues, typically economic, who want a Republican Party that is united by traditional Republican issues rather than divided by this. Okay. So it seems naturally following from that, that if Republicans are going to, should either stop making this a front and center issue and failing that don't bring it up. And failing that, don't court people who are going to make you bring it up. All of that is true. And there's one more ingredient, which is what the Republican Party really needs on this is a dose of federalism, because this has become a regional issue. There's quite a wide gap in opinion between the South in particular, where the Republican Party is strong, and most of the rest of the country, but especially the Northeast and West Coast. And this is the way to at least buy time and square the circle electorally for the Republicans is to say, let the states go their own ways, let Texas go one way and New York another and yet, so long as they are joined at the hip with the uh, particular social conservative lobby that demands a federal marriage amendment, that demands a uniform federal rule on this, they're not going to be able to move to that more natural position. Okay. David Lampo, uh, with respect to this issue, federalism seems a very clear, right-in-the-wheelhouse Republican answer to this. And yet, I see a lot of parallels between the uh, marriage equality issue and the marijuana issue. That is, let's get the feds out of this to some extent, let states lead the way and, as Walter suggested, allow regions to deal with this issue in the way that they will. Right. Well, federalism is a, a traditional conservative and Republican principle. And so one can certainly be opposed to marriage equality, for example, but still think it's a state issue. And I, I think, like Wally said, that is certainly the uh, a winning combination for Republicans in general, but also those who still can't bring themselves to support same-sex marriage. You know, after the, the Romney defeat last year, Republicans probably pined for the days of 2010 when they won such a smashing victory. And that's when the Tea Party really made such a splash on the national scene. And yet the formula for success that they followed was don't talk about social issues, don't talk about same-sex marriage, don't talk about gay rights. And nearly everyone attributes their smashing success to the fact that they followed that rule. And yet when the Republican Party nomination for president began, social issues and gay marriage and gay rights are the topics that immediately came up and that most social conservative candidates hammered on. And I think that really weakened the Republican Party in general. And certainly by the time Mitt Romney got the nomination, that's all they were talking about in addition to contraception and other issues. So I think the key to success is stay away from those issues. But it seems like Republicans are going to be 
are going to be have to, I guess, be dragged kicking and screaming toward a solution that emphasizes uh, federalism. The joke I like to make about the Republican National Convention in 2012 is, hey, look, once we've put down this Ron Paul rebellion, then we're going to worry about getting some new energy into the Republican Party. And looking at the demographics of the Republican Party today, it seems that fight for young people, people who for the most part do support same-sex marriage or at the very least don't really care strongly about the issue are the people that Republicans are just turning off. I like to offer the example of prohibition, which for more than a decade was, of course, a national issue. And people forget at a distance how important it was as a litmus test issue. You could not get a Republican nomination necessarily if you did not make the right noises about being dry. And this began to weigh down the Republican brand, as we would now call it. When FDR signed repeal in 1933, the issue didn't go away, but it stopped being a national issue. It reverted to being a local issue. And Prohibition remained popular in many states, but it was no longer a key identifier between the parties and the Republican prospects by the late 30s were coming back. Okay, So for states that are likely to field candidates that are going to be mostly against same-sex marriage, they can then say, well, sure, I'm for that, but it's unlikely to be a national issue in the future. So let's just talk about these other issues. Is that the way forward for those states? Yeah, I think you may have to repeat four or five times to a national reporter, look, I'm running for federal offices and this is a state issue or vice versa. But eventually they realize they're not going to get the fireworks they were hoping for. They can certainly say, you know, express their personal opinion. Uh, like Ron Paul did, for example, that he defined marriage a certain way between a man and a woman, but still make that distinction between uh, what one's personal view is and how the state, how the government should treat people of a different sexual orientation. And federalism and turning it over to the states is a way to kind of diffuse that controversial issue and buys time for the Republicans and others who currently oppose it to kind of catch up with the times, because even young Republicans support same-sex marriage, about half currently do, and 66% or more of all young Americans support it. So that's the way it's going. That's the trend. And I think the Republican Party has to catch up to that if it's going to be relevant. Now, the other parallel, I'm drawing parallels between this and uh, the politics of marijuana because I think they are somewhat similar because, and here's another parallel, the public opinion on this issue has changed dramatically in the last 15 years. Well, both really come down to a kind of a certain libertarian premise, and that is, you know, individual rights, control over one's body, what one chooses to do with it. And so there's a great libertarian parallel between both issues, I think. Yeah. The changes in public opinion have been about as dramatic on this as on any issue that you can think of. And although Newt Gingrich and others have talked about the generational replacement, that there's such a difference between 20-year-olds and 70-year-olds that simple demographic replacement of one generation by another will keep moving the numbers. It's also very striking if you look at people within a given age cohort, how many minds have changed. And that makes it particularly powerful because it means that it's no longer that big a vote-getter, even among the high-turnout people at retirement age. There are really two basic ways Republicans can act or react to the election results in, in 2012. You know, the party's undergoing a great bit of uh, introspection about what went wrong and how they should prepare for the future. And there were two different opposing reactions. One was symbolized by Rick Santorum. He and many others, perhaps most other social conservatives, 
said that Romney lost because the party wasn't socially conservative enough, that Romney did not make the case and speak out against gay marriage and gay rights enough. And so he went and joined a far-right website called WorldNet Daily. Now, that's one way to react to it. Newt Gingrich, for all his faults, reacted in the completely opposite way and basically came out and said, you know, the Republican Party has to change. It's got to update its view on gay rights and gay people and essentially staked out a, a pro marriage equality position on this issue. Now, that's how that's how the Republican Party changes. That's how it adapts to what happened, and that's how it grows for the future. You might also notice in Great Britain, conservative Prime Minister David Cameron has made a big deal out of trying to outflank his rivals in other parties by being pro-gay marriage and pro-gay in general. And people thought, well, this you know seems kind of gimmicky. And yes, he's relatively young. And yes, he probably really believes in the pro-gay things he's saying. But one of the remarkable results is that a recent poll showed that of gay voters, Cameron was actually favored over his labor rival. And this was not the way that gays had voted in Britain very, very recently. As in this country, they have been strongly identified with the more left-wing party. And it's interesting to think, This could be a mini opportunity for realignment in that a group that is currently voting strongly left, but whose economic interests are not necessarily in that direction, with the grievance taken away, might reassert its natural and more politically balanced temperament. So with an issue essentially being taken off of the table, a group that may be inclined to be largely single-issue voters or vote with a group of people that are broadly aligned with their interests are free to... Free to vote their other inclinations or vote on other issues. All right, gentlemen, I believe we'll leave it there. David Lampo, author of A Fundamental Freedom, Why Republicans, Conservatives, and Libertarians Should Support Gay Rights, released last year and very timely, I might add. And Walter Olson, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more on this issue and you can watch a video that we put together uh, just last year on this issue at Cato.org. The Constitution gives Congress the power to establish copyrights to promote the progress of science and useful arts. This would require Congress to engage in a delicate balancing act. But there are good reasons to be skeptical of an ever-growing copyright system, according to Jerry Brito, editor of the new volume, Copyright Unbalanced, From Incentive to Excess. He spoke at the Cato Institute in December. Now, one reason I think that conservatives and libertarians overlook copyright as a big government program is that we sometimes engage in a kind of logical thinking that goes like this. We think property is good, right? I think we all agree on that. It allows markets to work. Property is good. Copyright is property. Therefore, longer and stronger copyright is great. And I think that uh, that falls apart a little bit when you think about copyright the way the founders did. Copyright really is a different kind of property. It's different from traditional property. Traditional property, like real property, your house, your land, or personal property, predates the Constitution. Right? So before the Constitution existed, property existed and the common law recognized it. Not so for copyright. Copyright is created by the Constitution. Constitution gives Congress the power to establish copyright if it so chooses to do. So what does this tell us? It tells us that without the Constitution, we would not have copyright, yet we would have property. Do you see how that's different? 
Copyright is created by the Constitution to solve a market failure. Informational goods are public goods, and so you probably end up with uh, less uh, than an ideal amount because you're not providing an incentive to create, and so copyright attempts to solve that. Copyright is also limited in time, whereas property rights, traditional property rights, are perpetual. So what you want to do with copyrights, you want to offer just enough to incentivize the creation of creative works, but not anymore. And by the way, what I'm describing here is sort of the utilitarian approach to copyright that the founders included in the Constitution. But even if you want to take a moral rights approach, a natural rights approach to copyright, I think you'd still find that it must be limited. And you know, here's who I think is a good authority on this would be Ayn Rand. You can't think of somebody who was a stronger champion for property rights, especially property rights in the creations of man's intellectual faculties. And here's Ayn Rand quoting from Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. She says, and I quote, a right to intellectual property cannot be exercised in perpetuity. It would lead to the opposite of the very principle on which it is based. It would lead not to the earned reward of achievement, but to the unearned support of parasitism. So even Ayn Rand is saying you must have uh, limits to copyrights. So if there must be limits, somebody must set what those limits are. It can't be divined through philosophical inquiry. It has to be set politically. So copyright is a statutorily created property, right? And I'd say it's more akin to something like tradable emissions permits, which also exists, also created by Congress through statute to solve a market failure, or maybe also akin to taxicab medallions, right? These things are property. They're very valuable. They're tradable. They exist in the market. In fact, legislatures create these things so that they can be traded in the market to solve market failures, and that's wonderful. But they're different, right? So you can, tomorrow, New York City could double the number of taxicab medallions, which would reduce the value of existing ones, but that wouldn't be a takings, right? It's just, it's just legislatively, you can set what that number is. So copyright is a planned order. It's not an emergent order. So as a result, I think copyright is subject to what Friedrich Hayek would call a knowledge problem, right? And we as libertarians and conservatives are very aware of this problem in many other areas, right? In regulation, for example. Quite simply, is that the information required for rational economic planning is distributed amongst individuals. And so therefore, it's outside the knowledge of any one central planning uh, authority. So how do we know what the right contours of copyright are? And it's not just the length of the term of copyright. That's one of the contours. But there are many other contours that you have to keep in mind. What is patentable? Patentable, listen to me. What is copyrightable? So for example, today, boat hull designs can have a copyright, but aircraft designs cannot. Poetry is copyrightable, but jokes are not. Right? And so you, you, know, you have to set those limits, those contours somehow. But how do we know what the optimum ones are? The founders, for example, in their Copyright Act, established 14-year term, renewable for 14 more, and they had formalities, which means you had to register and renew. Today, you have copyright of life of the author plus 70 years, and you don't have formalities. How do we know that the founders got it right, or that they got it wrong, actually, and that today we have it right? Some, you know, is it somewhere in between? It's really difficult to know. In fact, I think it's, it's, in some ways it's unknowable. And I think what the Tom will show uh, is that while we can't know precisely, we can look around and have an idea that maybe we've gone a bit too far. And let me hasten to add, just because we don't know what the 
optimal amount of copyright to afford creators is, we also don't know by that fact that it should be zero, right? We probably know it, it's not zero. So, uh, you know, we don't know that as well. What that does tell us, though, is that we have to be humble and deliberate when we go about setting the contours of copyright because a mistake in either direction will introduce inefficiencies in either direction, whether we have too little copyright or, indeed, too much. Which brings me to what I think is sort of the second problem, uh, it's just the political problem of copyright, which is who sets these limits? Who sets the, uh, what this balance should be? Well, it's Congress. And Congress is not known for its humility or sort of really deliberate uh, ability. So because the contours of copyright are planned by Congress, you have a public choice problem, which, again, libertarians and conservatives understand all too well, one of concentrated benefits and diffused costs. You can think of, for example, ethanol subsidies or sugar quotas, where organized special interests um, lobby for one particular set of rules, that uh, the cost of which you know, benefit them but fall upon uh, the rest of us, the public at large, which is diffused and not well organized and, and uh, uh, only you know, feels it very little and doesn't have an incentive to go and, uh, and fight this. I think you see this in copyright. Organized special interests in Hollywood, in the recording industry, uh, in publishers, lobby for a stronger and longer copyright. And this longer and stronger copyright necessarily comes at, uh, at the expense of the public because it is saddled with stronger restrictions on their speech and on their use of uh, traditional property. And what does the public get in return for this? Well, it's not clear. You might think that they, you know, we would get uh, more and better creative works, but I'm not sure that that is very clear. The Cato Institute recently released the 2012 Fiscal Policy Report Card on America's Governors, and one of the findings is that many states are pursuing tax reforms, but reforms for good and bad, with serious consequences for economic growth. David Brenori is Executive Vice President of Tax Analysts. He spoke at a Cato Capitol Hill briefing in December. So I want to talk about one particular aspect of state tax policy that I think is particularly egregious and, and, and has a particular – it drives me crazy. And, and I've been like Don Quixote on this for about 20 years, and my friend Chris has written about it, and, and Joe's written about it and talked about it. But I think one of the greatest impediments to economic growth – is the state corporate income tax. I think the state corporate income tax is awful. And I think that liberals, for reasons I'll talk about in a minute, and conservatives and libertarians should rally around its repeal. I really believe it. It raises about $50 billion, $60 billion in a good year, maybe a little bit more. It doesn't raise that much money, but we spend an enormous amount of money. I'll tell you about that in a second. In 2003, I gave a speech at the Federation of Tax Administrators, and I called for the repeal of the tax, and I was booed. I was booed. And then I gave the same speech before a group of, of tax lawyers at the ABA, and I said, we should repeal the corporate income tax, and I was booed. <laughs> Do you know how hard it is to get booed and heckled at a, at a tax conference? <laughs> the point I was trying to make was that the corporate income tax did not raise a lot of money, and it doesn't. still doesn't. That without reforms that will never happen politically in the technical details, which are not important at this moment, which will never happen politically, it will never raise a lot of money. 
it consumes an inordinate amount of resources, planning, litigating, auditing, talking about it at conferences, et cetera, et cetera. And that we should stop pretending it matters because it doesn't. And I'll say it again, we should repeal the corporate income tax. I know Chris will not boo me on that or either will Joe. And there's a million problems with the tax. And tax incentives, which Joe uh, discussed briefly, are just one of the big problems. And tax incentives, as you all should know, and I don't care what your political persuasion is, tax incentives are the devil's work. They really are. It's, they're awful tax policy. They're awful government policy. And I will tell you, they not only violate every notion of sound tax policy, but they're unnecessary. That's the kicker. Uh, there's tons of research and a lot of anecdotal evidence that show that most corporations will have made the investment even without the incentive. And many corporations make the decision to invest before they start negotiating the incentive. And it's not much of an incentive, is it, if that's what's happening? And I will tell you, I've said this before, political leaders are unimaginative cowards in this area. They really are. Both Democrats and Republicans, terrible. Joe alluded to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which I guess it was two years ago now, 18 months maybe. They were threatening to move to New Jersey if it did not get tax breaks from Illinois. Now, you guys know the, the Merck, right? The Merck is the world's greatest commodity exchange, right? Wheat, corn, rye, oats, pigs, orange juice, all that good stuff. And it would be pretty weird running it out of Hackensack, first of all. But more importantly, what the heck kind of company threatens to move to New Jersey for tax purposes? Think about that. And you tax foundation folks in here, you know where New Jersey ranks every year in the tax, the business climate tax index. I think it was 49 this year. They moved up one. And they moved 49. up one, but it was 50 last year. <laughs> and it was 50 when they were threatening to do this. It's like, oh, we're going to move to New Jersey, get a better tax deal. It's crazy. So here's the new thing. We know that if a corporation has a tax advisor with a pulse, it can minimize its tax burden down to zero. I mean, that's just a given. So what kind of incentive can you offer a corporation that does not actually pay income taxes? You let them keep the taxes paid by their employees. That's what you do. So Illinois, for example, and Pennsylvania is another state that does this, allows corporations, some corporations, not all, to retain the personal taxes paid by their employees rather than remit them to the state, right? So your income tax is withheld, your state income tax is withheld by your employer. And instead of your employer paying it over to the state to fund, I don't know, teachers, police officers, road improvements, the corporation keeps it. I know money's fungible, but that's just crazy. I mean, that is just crazy talk but it's actually crazy practice. I actually think there's legislation in like seven states to do more of this in the coming year. And I think it's a blasphemy from both a good government perspective and from a sound tax policy perspective. But here's my question, and I would like you all to think about this. Uh, you're not really going to think. Some of you will. I'd like you to think about this next time the issue of corporate taxes come up, wherever you may be, state corporate taxes. I want you to ask yourself and ask 
anyone who supports corporate taxes, why we tax corporate income at the state level. I want you to ask that question and see if you can get an answer, because I've been thinking about it for 10 years and I cannot come up with an answer. Is it because we need the money? Well, the truth is we don't raise that much money from it. I mean, you know, $50 billion, $60 billion is not exactly chump change, but it's not a lot of money. And besides, there's a lot more efficient and effective ways of raising uh, revenue. Oregon, for instance, which is a bastion of liberalism, raises more money from its amusement tax than its corporate tax. I don't think most of you knew that. Maybe you did. Montana. I know there's some people in this room from Montana. Man, Montana, where the people believe it's immoral to tax consumption, raises four times as much money from its excise taxes than from its corporate income tax. Think about how crazy that is. Vermont, which sends up a, a socialist to the U.S. Senate, raises more money from licensing barber shops than it does from its corporate income tax. Now, that's not to say there's not cost in the corporate income tax because those corporations are all doing planning and auditing and uh, litigation and all that other stuff. But they're just not paying the corporate income tax to Vermont. If we were about the money, we would do a lot of things to strengthen the corporate income tax. And there are ways you can strengthen it. You can adopt combined reporting. You can join the MTC as a full-fledged member and get in there and start auditing the hell out of corporations. There's a lot of things you can do, which politically are very difficult to do. We'd stop handing out corporate tax incentives if we were really doing this for the money. Ooh, but we're not going to do that. So then I would ask you, do we tax corporate income because corporations derive some benefit from society? Often we hear that argument. Right? Corporations enjoy roads and schools and prisons and all those other things that we do, the government does. And maybe they should be paying for some of that. But if that's our motivation, I, I will ask you this, and I don't want to get too technical about this, but the trend in corporate income taxation has been to adopt something called the single sales factor apportionment formula, which some of you know about. And basically what those kinds of taxation schemes do is they tax corporations who are not in the state. So the more plant and equipment you have in the state, the less taxes you pay. So if you manufacture in Iowa and you export all of your goods and services outside of Iowa, you pay no corporate income taxes in Iowa. Well, that's not a benefits tax, right? We're not asking a corporation to pay for the benefits it's receiving because there's no correlation between the taxes and the benefits it receives. Zero. And that has been the trend, by the way. And by the way, that may be a good thing. Politically, it may be a good thing from an economic development standpoint, but it's not a benefits tax. So maybe we tax corporations because we want to, I don't know, soak the rich. My way liberal friends certainly think that's the case, right? We're going to go after the man. We're going to go after the fat cat shareholders, the Warren Buffetts, the Mitt Romneys. The problem with that argument, there's two problems with that argument. Problem number one, everybody in this room is a shareholder, right? If you have a 401k, if you're doing any kind of savings at all, you're a shareholder, right? Everybody in America is a shareholder. 
the vast majority of them are not fat cats. That's number one. Number two, there has been a 40-year debate about the incidence of the tax. Okay, so over those 40 years, some economists believe it falls on the owners of capital in the form of lower returns. And if any of you know, like Jane Gravel or people like that, will make that argument very stridently in the form of lower returns. It really is going after the shareholders. Some think it falls on consumers. All this is really not uh, in fashion anymore. It falls on consumers in the form of higher prices, right? They're the ones who ultimately are paying the, the tax. But a lot of people think it falls on labor in the form of lower wages, this is particularly true in, in growing in its acceptance in a globalized economy, right? Because if you can move capital to wherever, Argentina, and get lower wages, then your corporate income tax is going to fall on American, American workers in the form of lower wages. That's who's going to bear the burden. Anyway, we can articulate policy reasons for taxing sin personal income, consumption, but we cannot easily identify policy reasons for taxing corporate income. And we really don't know why we tax corporations at the state level. And we spend an enormous amount of, uh, inordinate amount of money planning, auditing, litigating, talking about the damn tax, and it ain't worth it. Just as the Supreme Court takes up another university affirmative action case, a new book on the subject arrives. Mismatch, How Affirmative Action Hurts Students It's Intended to Help, and Why Universities Won't Admit It. The book's co-author, Richard Sanders, spoke at the Cato Institute in October. I first got interested in the question of mismatch when I was innocently working on administrative issues for the law school where I taught. And I was very interested in the idea of academic support, how admissions worked, how our students did after they graduated, and it didn't take long to sort of look at what was happening to sense that something like mismatch might be important. We were admitting students at UCLA with large preferences who had about a 90% chance of graduating, but only about a 50% chance of passing the bar. So that cumulatively meant that uh, only about 45% of the students with large preferences that we were admitting actually went on to smoothly go through law school and get their law degrees. It wasn't hard to look at other schools in Los Angeles where our students with preferences would have gotten in without preferences to see that, uh, that those students seem to have much better outcomes. So I started looking into this and looked for relevant databases that could help test it. And uh, by 2004, 2005, developed the paper that sort of first discussed the mismatch issue in the law school context and found that this was really quite a large problem, that nationally, the great bulk of minority students, especially African-American students, were receiving very large preferences, typically on a scale of a couple hundred, the equivalent of a couple hundred SAT points or 10 LSAT points, 10 to 15 LSAT points, that uh, bar passage rates were generally very poor for this group. Only about a third of blacks starting law school in the early 2000s were graduating and passing the bar in their first attempt. And uh, this was affecting the lives of a very substantial, very large majority of people who were or supposedly being helped by preferences. What really struck me, though, when, when the article came out was the institutional response, the collective unwillingness of a great many legal academics to engage this at all, the 
instinctive reaction of a lot of institutions to further restrict data that was already extremely hard to get and further obscure processes that were not revealed. The fact that there was really no law school in the country where somebody who received a large preference could get accurate information about what their actual prospects were if they went to a particular law school. So I became interested in, in trying to look at this more broadly, and the Searle Foundation contacted me in 2007, and they were very interested in trying to get good, empirically-based, non-ideological research done. And together, we commissioned a number of efforts to shake loose data from various institutions and to find disinterested social scientists who, who want to work on, this, on these problems. Over time, partly through that effort and partly through lots of other independent efforts, a lot of mismatched research has been done. The vast majority of it peer-reviewed and published in excellent journals. So we now know that science mismatches are a pervasive problem, that although blacks are more likely than similar whites to want to major in sciences and engineering when they go to college, they're much less likely to get what we call STEM degrees, science, engineering, math degrees, if they receive a large preference. A study by Fred Smythe at the University of Virginia found that if you take two blacks who, or two students of any color, who one of whom receives a large preference, one of whom doesn't, the student who receives a preference has about a 40% larger chance of dropping out of science on his path through. Mismatch also affects academically inclined students who receive large preferences, would like to become university professors or go into academics someday, but very predominantly receive low academic grades, cluster at the bottom of the class, and decide that academics is not for them. The biggest mismatch experiment was in California, where voters passed Proposition 209. And we had a large quasi-natural experiment of what happens when racial preferences are banned from an entire university system. The results of Prop 209 are extremely clear for anyone who, who bothers to look. Within a half dozen years of the implementation of race neutrality, the number of blacks in the University of California system had gone up by about 30%. The number of blacks receiving bachelor degrees had gone up by about 70%. The numbers were even larger for Hispanics. GPAs had gone up. Persistence in science had gone up. Virtually every outcome had been a dramatic improvement. The only thing that critics can point to as a problem with Prop 2 and I was that there were fewer African Americans at, uh, at Berkeley and UCLA, the most elite campuses, which had used the largest preferences when racial preferences were permitted. But this was not actually a bad outcome. Those students who were, had been admitted to Berkeley and UCLA were still going to UC schools. They had much higher success rates. And because Berkeley and UCLA had hoarded so many minority students, having the national reputation to do so, the race neutrality after 2 and 9 actually increased the level of integration across UC campuses. One of the things that we talk about in the book is a so-called cascade effect. When elite universities admit students, the most elite schools have the first pick at the students they would like to admit through preferences. So those very elite schools admit not only the very top African-American and Hispanic candidates, but they also admit students who are in the second, third, and fourth tiers of academic achievement. This means that when the second tier schools want to use preferences, they really have to start fairly far down the ladder. And ironically, that means that the largest preferences are not used by the most elite schools. They're used by schools that are actually in the third or fourth tier of all colleges. This is very important for a couple of reasons. One is that it helps explain sort of the, the strong knee-jerk defense of preferences that's often led by leaders at the most elite universities. Derek Bach and William Bowen come to mind because they look at their universities, and in fact, the effects of preferences are significantly more moderated in those contexts. The worst effects of mismatch 
are at the second, third, and lower tiers. The second interesting effect of the cascade is that it means that even though only 20, 25% of all colleges in America are highly selective institutions, they absorb so much of the talented pool of minority students that even schools, say, second tier state universities that simply have threshold requirements to get in, are still going to have a very large disparity among their students and their qualifications, which is significantly aggravated by the use of preferences at the more elite schools. And that means that mismatch is something that affects a really broad swath of higher education. One of the things we talk about in the book is another empirical side of racial preferences, the side that's got to be prominent in the discussions in Fisher, which is the, the diversity interest of schools in having a diverse racial climate. One of the really interesting things that research has shown in recent years that we talk about some in the book is how much those diversity effects are moderated by the academic distance that exists in schools. In other words, when you admit students with large preferences, they're much less likely to socially interact with peers of other races. This has been very well documented by research by Peter Arsidiakono and others. There's also self-doubt effects that result from getting low grades. There are reinforcement of stereotypes. One study even found that students who believe that they were admitted on a preference are much more vulnerable to stereotype threat. So diversity research, when looked at carefully, actually fits very nicely, fits very closely into mismatch findings. Obamacare is still vulnerable, and perhaps more vulnerable than ever. In a Cato Institute sponsor e-briefing held in November, Cato's Director of Health Policy Studies, Michael Cannon, explained how states can stop much of Obamacare in its tracks. After the election, a lot of supporters of the law, which really only account for about one-third of the American population, have been saying that well, now this is settled law. President Obama wields the veto pen. It will not be repealed. And what's more, this was a referendum on that law. And the voters approved it. But in fact, what you had in the November presidential election was a race between the first person to enact Obamacare into law against the second person to enact Obamacare into law. Mitt Romney signed an identical measure into law in Massachusetts when he was governor there in 2006. And President Obama took the idea and ran with it. So this is not a referendum on Obamacare. Obamacare has always been unpopular with the American people. It continues to be unpopular. And it's also still vulnerable because the greatest threat to this law was never Mitt Romney or a Romney presidency. The greatest threat to Obamacare has always been its unpopularity, the enormous costs it's going to impose on lots of people, and its instability that are a result of some of the compromises that its authors had to put in place just to get that law passed, as well as what the Supreme Court did to change the law. So a brief sketch. This law creates two new entitlement programs. The first is through its so-called health insurance exchanges. These are the new government bureaucracies where the magic of Obamacare is supposed to happen. Some of that magic includes $800 billion of subsidies to private insurance companies over the next 10 years. The other new entitlement is the expansion of the Medicaid program. Both of those entitlement programs have to be approved by states. States have to create their own health insurance exchanges in order for that $800 billion to start flowing. And states have to, thanks to the Supreme Court, states have to voluntarily sign up to expand their Medicaid programs or else that trillion dollars of, it's actually 900 or billion or a trillion dollars of new spending can't start to flow. So states are really in a position to veto large portions of Obamacare. And it's not just the spending. 
The spending in the exchanges is tied to tax credits, and those tax credits are tied to the individual and employer mandates in Obamacare. So states can actually free a lot of their citizens and all of their employers from those mandates simply by refusing to create a health insurance exchange. They would reduce the federal deficit as they would if they decided not to expand the Medicaid program. And that's really the most important thing that anyone can do to strike a blow against Obamacare because if states refuse to implement the Medicaid expansion, refuse to create a health insurance exchange, they're going to force Congress to reopen this law. Congress will absolutely have to reopen this law. And so my prediction is that even though President Obama wields the veto pen, he will at some point in his second term have to sign into law major changes to Obamacare, if not because of the program's own instability, because of the debt crisis that we're facing here in the United States. As you know, there are negotiations going on in Washington right now over what to do about the fiscal cliff. They're trying to find some ways to cut spending. Well, Obamacare is $1.6 trillion of higher deficits over the next 10 years. And that's money that hasn't started flowing yet from a program that's unpopular. And that is the easiest sort of spending to cut. So for these and other reasons, I think that President Obama will have to sign some major changes to Obamacare into law before he leaves office. Does the climate of opinion among legal commentators improperly encourage judges to be activists? At a book event in November, Cato Institute Vice President Roger Pilon commented on the new book by Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson III, Cosmic Constitutional Theory, Why Americans Are Losing Their Inalienable Right to Self-Governance. As with so many conservatives, conservative jurisprudence, judges, and others who came out of the Warren and Burger Court era, it's far less the Constitution than the role of judges under it that drives Jay's thesis, which is, as his title says, that judges employing cosmic constitutional theory are undermining our inalienable right to self-governance. In fact, let me just read from various parts of this to illustrate that. Early on in his argument, on page nine, he says, the great casualty of cosmic constitutional theory has been our inalienable right of self-governance. Well-intentioned, though they may be, the theorists have blinded judges and scholars alike to this first principle of our constitutional order, namely self-governance. I'm going to return to that point in just a few minutes, but I want to mark it right here. And then right at the end of the book, on the very last page, Jay writes that, so what is my theory? The answer is, I have no theory. I offer only a set of worn and ordinary observations that have all been voiced many times before. There is nothing novel in the idea that judges should pay attention to the text, structure, and history of the Constitution and not go creating rights out of whole cloth, or that judges should appreciate otherness, the other branches of government, the other sovereign that is state government, the other institutions, professions, and trades that compromise, that comprise the private sector. And then he concludes this by saying, or that liberty is best safeguarded when the allocation of authority to those others is respected by the courts. Well, the great problem today, the great modern problem in the 20th century, 
is that due to the deference of the courts to those other branches, we have a Leviathan that today has given us a debt of $16 trillion that has given us a budget, 40% of which we borrow to carry out. And in other words, this Leviathan, I submit, is the result of the kind of judicial deference that came out of the New Deal court. And it's the major problem that we deal with today, far greater than the problem of judicial activism, in my judgment. And indeed, the regional design, as we at Cato have been arguing since the inception of the Center for Constitutional Studies, has been rent asunder by the theory that came out of progressivism as institutionalized by the New Deal court, about which I'll say something more in just a moment. Now, for all of this, however, Jay purports to have no theory, as I just read uh, from the passage. He does have a theory, though, and we see it on page after page. It's a theory that says, as his subtitle implies, that our fundamental constitutional principle is democracy, which invariably means, of course, majoritarianism. But of course, if that's all it meant, that would be bad enough. But as public choice theorists have shown us over and over again, it means rule by special interests. Those special interests who know how to work the system, realizing that concentrated benefits and dispersed costs will give them the leg up in working the political branches. And the result is, as I said a moment ago, the Leviathan that we have today. The book is divided, however, into four main parts. And it seems to me that's the great genius of this book, to focus on those four main theories. He begins with living constitutionalism. And William Brennan is, of course, his exemplar of that. He then goes to originalism by Hugo Black and Robert Bork. And there are the two main theories that, of course, are vying for attention and have been vying for attention ever since the um, Warren and Burger courts came onto the scene. Then he also looks at what he calls political process theory from John Hart Ely, and then pragmatism as exemplified by uh, the um, works of uh, Richard Posner, which he calls activism through anti-theory. I'm not gonna say much about those third and fourth schools of thought. The two main ones are enough for the limited time that uh, either of us has this afternoon. Starting though with um, living uh, constitutionalism, his main criticism, and this is true of all the um, theories that he discusses, is that the judges are invariably driven to impose their own personal values. Well, of course, you ask the judges who are in uh, the crosshairs of Jay what they're doing, and of course, with the exception of Brennan, who was quite clear on the point, they are not imposing their personal values. What they are doing is they think, interpreting the Constitution. And of course, that's the great debate. Are they interpreting it correctly or incorrectly? But repeatedly through this book, we have Jay's reducing that always to personal values rather than to grappling with whether their theory of the Constitution is or is not correct. Again, I'm going to turn to that in just a moment. With respect to Brennan, however, and the living Constitution, let's be clear, Jay praises that school's fruitful definitions of commerce 
And uh, I think uh, a passage here would be helpful, especially for this audience, to understand what he's talking about. He says, by allowing the legislative branch, this is the New Deal court, to update constitutional terms like commerce. I wasn't aware that commerce needed updating as a term, but apparently that's the case. Living constitutionalism also made contributions to democratic accountability, legislative flexibility, and judicial restraint that originalist interpretation would not allow. That's right, the Lochner Court did not allow that. It stood athwart those efforts to use the Commerce Clause as well as the alleged parts of the Constitution to expand the scope of government. He then um, goes to equality, and here, you've got some interesting discussions of what it is that um, Jay has to say on this particular subject, namely that um, the very existence of a multiple elective forums established by the Constitution presupposes that allowing different answers to some of our disputatious questions is not at all a bad way to proceed. I submit that the reason that you allowed different forums for political activity was not to allow different answers to some of the disputatious questions, but rather to check power against power. And we see that throughout the Federalist Papers. It wasn't so much to reach the best result, but to enable one locus of power to check another locus of power. And then we see right after that some of the things that uh, Jay thinks uh, were properly decided and improperly decided. Lopez, Heller, and so forth were not uh, properly decided. And then um, when we turn to uh, what, to my mind, is the core of the matter with respect to um, originalism, and here I'm going to leave the living constitution thing, because much of what Jay says about living constitutionalism in his critical part is absolutely correct. But then he turns to originalism, citing Hugo Black as the original textualist, as indeed he was, and Bork as the true originalist. But when he turns to Bork, however, uh, he praises Bork for having, for example, dismissed the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, saying essentially that we don't know what it means, therefore presumably we should ignore it. Well, I don't know how a textualist, just because he's not sure what it means, can ignore the text. It seems to me that that is an invitation to find out more precisely what it does mean. In any event, uh, he says that, in other words, it can be just as activists to pretend that the Constitution's words provide all the answers as to ignore its text in order to reach outcomes one happens to approve. And of course, this is true of those who happen to approve democracy as the outcome or majoritarianism. Now we come to the heart of the matter, it strikes to me, and that's with his discussion of Bork. I'm going to read this, and I'm going to suggest what it is that Jay left out of this is the core of the matter. Bork's search for a theory began with the Madisonian dilemma, Jay writes. The Constitution establishes the government around two principles that necessarily exist in tension, majority power and minority freedom. The framers' genius lay in recognizing that neither majorities nor minorities can be trusted to define the proper spheres of democratic authority and individual liberty. There are dangers at either extreme, tyranny is tyranny, be it of the majority or the minority. The framers balance the competing principles of majority rule and minority freedom both structurally by limiting the reach of power and dispersing power within the national government and substantively through the Bill of Rights. What is left out there 
is the core of the problem in the Borkian approach. What Bork said was not just the Madisonian dilemma invites us to find the balance between majoritarian rule and minority rights. He said more precisely that our Madisonian dilemma amounts to two fundamental principles. First, that in wide areas, majorities are entitled to rule simply because they are majorities. Nevertheless, and here's our second principle, there are some things that majorities must not do to minorities, some areas in which minorities must be free from majority rule. Those quantitative points make all the difference in the world. They are saying, in other words, that we are basically a small d democratic majoritarian nation with majorities authorized to rule in wide areas and more minorities retaining some restraint from that. That, I submit, gets Madison exactly backwards. It turns Madison on his head. Madison stood for the fundamental principle that in wide areas, individuals are entitled to be free because they're born free. Nevertheless, in some areas, majorities are entitled to rule because we have authorized them to rule. That gets the principle straight. Liberty first, democracy second, where authorized, not the other way around. And that, of course, has been, from our perspective here at the Cato Institute, the fundamental problem with both the liberal approach and the conservative approach to the proper role of judges. Judges are there neither to make up the law out of whole cloth, nor to ignore the law like the Privileges or Immunities Clause, like the Ninth Amendment, when it is there staring them in the face. And so when you look at it that way, it turns out that there's much more for the judge to do than we would imagine under the um, theory that Jay has set forth. And I see that my time is coming to an end, and maybe I'll get a chance to finish the rest of this in my five-minute rebuttal. But the point that I would leave you with is this, that you need to have a theory of the matter if you are going to understand the proper role of the court. And the theory of the matter is the theory of the Constitution, not simply the theory of judicial review. And the theory of the Constitution, it seems to me, is one that makes it clear that the framers, and you look at the Constitution from beginning to end, from the preamble to the ratification clause, to all the points in between, and you will see that in case after case, the framers established the Constitution meant to limit government. And then if you really want to look at original understanding, look at the Federalist Papers. In Federalist 41, Madison makes it clear that the General Welfare Clause is extraordinarily limited, in other words, the taxing power. In Federalist 42, he addresses the limits of the Commerce Clause. In Federalist 44, he addresses the limits of the Necessary and Proper Clause. In Federalist 45, he makes it very clear when he says that the powers of the new government will be, quote, few and defined. And then in Federalist 51, he gives us this famous, if men were angels passage, in which he makes clear that this is a constitution of limited government. It cannot be limited if you leave it all to the political branches. 
The Cato Institute's winter book sale ends February 28th. Right now, many of Cato's most popular books are on sale, and all ebooks are 50% off. Go to cato.org slash store slash winter sale and enter winter 13 at checkout to apply your savings. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.